Dr. Maurice uh, Rawlings, who has uh, since uh, passed away, was a cardiologist and a professor of medicine at the University of Tennessee. Rawlings was a, a devout atheist who considered all religion to be hocus-pocus. And he saw death as nothing more than a, a painless extinction. Until something happened that changed his life. In 1977, he was giving a, a stress test to a man who was having chest pain. And in the middle of the test, the man dropped dead in Rawlings' office. Dr. Rawlings and several nurses began to work on him. He began chest compressions while a nurse began mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Several times, the patient would regain consciousness, and then he would die again. And each time the patient was resuscitated, he would scream, I'm in hell! Dr. Rawlings thought he meant he was in pain from the CPR. But then the patient gave a strange command, don't stop. This shocked Dr. Rawlings, who says that when most patients recover, they tell him to take his hands off of them because he is hurting them from CPR. Dr. Rawlings went on to describe the man as having a terrified look on his face, worse than the expression typically seen in death. The patient had a a grotesque grimace, expressing sheer horror. His pupils were dilated. He was perspiring and trembling, and he looked as if his hair was on edge. Then still, another strange thing happened. The patient said, Don't you understand? I'm in hell. Each time you quit, I go back to hell. Don't let me go back to hell. The incident was so, was so powerful that Dr. Rawlings would become a committed Christian. And he wrote a book telling stories of several of these near-death experiences. He concluded by saying, Now I feel assured that there is life after death, and not all of it is good. Dr. Rawlings described a patient who spiritually left this earth and went to hell. But this morning, we are going to see just the opposite. Hell comes to earth. We are looking at the the trumpet judgments, which were revealed when the seventh seal was opened by the Lord. And they are some of the final judgments during the tribulation period. If you recall from last week, if you listened to the audio recording, we studied the first four trumpet judgments where God targeted creation. He targeted nature. More specifically, one-third of the land and its vegetation. One-third of the seas and the sea life. 
God targeted one-third of fresh water, and it became deadly. And he also targeted one-third of the heavenly bodies, such such as the sun and the moon and the stars. These first four trumpets directly targeted nature. And as we might imagine, they will indirectly impact people. However, the next judgments will be very different because God will take direct aim at people who still refuse to repent and come to the Lord for salvation. In these next judgments, people are the targets. Four angels have sounded their trumpets. And now we come to the fifth angel with his trumpet. So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 9, and we will begin with verse 1. Revelation chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. I think it should be on the board behind me. Okay. Let's begin. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. As soon as the fifth angel blew his trumpet, the apostle John sees another star. But this time, the star is an intelligent being with the key to the bottomless pit. As you might expect, there are several views regarding the identity of this being. But from my point of view, okay, my point of view, there are only two real possibilities depending on how we interpret that word fallen. Some think this this being who has fallen from heaven is Satan. And that could be the case if the word fallen refers to a rebellious state. But if the word fallen simply describes the condition of having come from heaven above to the earth below, then this star, this being, is likely another high-ranking angel. And I think that is the case for two reasons. First, because it's hard to imagine that God would entrust the key to the bottomless pit to Satan or to any other rebellious angel for that matter. I'm having a hard time imagining that. But secondly... And we will see later in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, that an angel, possibly this same angel, has the key to the abyss and locks Satan up. We read in in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, this is John speaking, Then I saw an angel coming down, from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. I think these two passages refer to the exact same angel with the key to the bottomless pit. And the literal meaning of the bottomless pit is the shaft of the abyss. That's what that means. Which appears to be 
a temporary place of confinement for demons. Not all demons, but some demons. Using terms of of incarceration that we might be familiar with, we could say that that the pit or the abyss, however you want to refer to it, is the county jail. It's the county jail where confinement is temporary. Whereas the lake of fire is like prison, death row for life. Okay? Hopefully, hopefully that makes sense, I hope. Now in verse 2, John tells us what the angel does with the key. And we read, He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And before we dig into this, it is worth noting that in this chapter, In this chapter, there are more uses of the word as and like than in any other chapter in the entire Bible. Okay? This shows us how difficult it was for John to describe what he was witnessing. But it also reminds us to be very careful as we try to understand this chapter. Okay? So John tells us the pit is opened by the angel. And to follow John's description, it might help to imagine this pit, this abyss, as something like a huge underground cavern. Okay? Are you with me? A huge underground cavern. Then imagine a narrow shaft going up to the surface and a locked door at the top. Are you with me? Okay. Finally, picture the cavern filled with choking blue smoke caused by a a sulfurous crude oil burning furnace. Can you picture all that? What would be the first thing to happen when the angel opened the pit? Obviously, smoke would belch up from the shaft like the smoke of a great furnace obscuring the view of the sun and the sky. But the smoke is not the greatest concern because there is something hidden in the smoke. And it's not nicotine. Verse 3. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, And power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die. And death flees from them. In this passage, we learn that locusts come out of the smoke 
from the pit. But they are not normal bugs. These are demons that assume some of the characteristics of locusts. But they are not permitted to destroy any plant as locusts normally would. Instead, these locusts have power similar to scorpions. Meaning they can torment like a scorpion. Causing excruciating and burning and even debilitating pain to those that they sting. These demons are unleashed upon the earth like locusts. It's a time of demonic activity that the world has never seen. However, God has placed limitations on them. There are, there are boundaries they cannot cross. We're told these demons cannot hurt anyone who has been sealed by God like the 144,000 Jews we talked about. And they are prohibited from killing anyone. They can only torment people for five months. And this torment is so terrible that people will seek death. They will try to die. But they will not be able to do so. We could take this to mean that suicide will somehow become impossible during these five months, or that people will live in such agony that they will truly wish they were dead. Or it could be both. Can you imagine the horrible agony and torment, and torture being experienced here. Longing to die, wanting to die, and yet being forced to remain alive to experience more. Now in the next five verses, John describes these demons from head to tail. Okay? And it's important that we do not assume, hear me, it's important that we do not assume that what is made visible to John will be made visible to others. Does that make sense? It's very possible that people will experience the torment of these demons, but may never see their tormentors. I mean, that's something to think about. They may never see their tormentors. Just because John sees them does not mean anyone else will. So with that said, let's pick up with John's description beginning in verse 7. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads appeared to be crowns of gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women. And their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates, like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as a king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, 
he has the name Apollyon. Once again, John is, excuse me, attempting to describe something that is almost indescribable to him. And quite frankly, to us as well. And let me say, these are the kinds of passages that are prone to all sorts of wild speculation and excessive symbolism. And my response would be, stop it. Just stop it. These are not military attack helicopters, as some have suggested. But rather, this is God giving unrepentant people a small taste of hell on earth. And and consistent with that limited hellish experience, John is describing demons. These are demons who are ferocious and frightening, aggressive and merciless in their torment of people. Is there a picture of them? Okay. Okay. For five months, they wreak havoc. And this havoc is apparently coordinated because we are told they have a king over them. The angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. These demons have a leader, a king, and his name is Abaddon and Apollyon. And both names mean the exact same thing. Destroyer. Destroyer. These demons are in submission to this destroyer. But who is he? Some believe this is Satan. But nowhere in Scripture is Satan ever referred to by either one of these names. And secondly, Satan is not in the the pit. He's not in the abyss, at least, at least not yet. This is likely, in my, in my estimation, this is likely one of Satan's high-ranking demons. Like a, like a field general, perhaps. Just as God has his, his ranks of angels, archangels, so Satan will also have his, his ranks of demons. I think this is a high-ranking demon. So what we have read thus far really is, is almost bad beyond belief. But it gets worse. It gets worse with the sixth angel and his trumpet. So let's pick up with verse 12. Verse 12, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. In this passage, we're told that the sixth angel sounded his trumpet. 
Then afterwards, a voice from the altar speaks and says to the sixth angel, Release the four angels who are bound at the river Euphrates. This is the first time an angel with a trumpet was also commanded to participate in the judgment. Something the first five trumpet angels had not experienced. The sixth angel was commanded to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So who are these four angels? I think it is safe to assume these are fallen angels. These are demons. Since God's holy angels are not bound. Now I am not sure, I am not sure why these four fallen angels are bound at the Euphrates River. We're not told. But maybe it's because that area is considered the cradle of civilization. It was where the Garden of Eden was located. It was where Satan first tempted man. It was where the first sin was committed. It was where the first lie was told. It was where the first murder was committed. It was where the first grave was dug. It's also where Satan had his first apparent victory. So maybe, and I'm just guessing, maybe that is the connection as to why these four angels are there. Whatever the case, let's read on beginning with verse 15. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they could kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceeded fire and smoke and brimstone. And a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which preceded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads. And with them they do harm. These four fallen angels at the Euphrates River, prepared for this special assignment, were released so that they could lead in the killing of another third of the remaining population, which in today's numbers would account for over two billion people dead. And if you remember... We previously lost a quarter of the population when the fourth seal was opened. Again, this is another one of those passages that is open to a lot of crazy speculation. Some have suggested that this army represents the Chinese army who in the past have have claimed to have had an army of 200 million soldiers. Some say that John's description in this passage points to futuristic weapons like 
tanks and helicopters and fighter jets. But I believe staying true to these hell-on-earth conditions. This is just another very large group of demons. An army of demonic horsemen unleashed to bring death and destruction upon the inhabitants of the world. Get that picture of them up there? Great. In verse 18, John writes... A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. There are three plagues that come out of their mouths of these demonic horses. Plague of fire, the plague of smoke, and the plague of brimstone. All natural elements that God will use to bring judgments. If you recall, these are, these are the similar elements that God used to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. Now we have come to one of the most, I think, most shocking passages in the entire Bible. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. You ready? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands. So as to not worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their immorality, nor of their thefts. Here's the shocking truth of this passage. In spite of their agony and torment, many people just won't let go. In essence, John describes hardcore, stubborn unbelievers who are giving into giving into the very things that will ultimately destroy them. Which really isn't anything new if you think about it. Today, people set their hearts on many other things. Things that pull them away from God and from real life. They are, they are entertained by spiritual things, paranormal things, deceived by demons. Their addictions have essentially become their idols of worship. And they are drawn towards anything and everything but God. John tells us that during this time there will be an increase in murder. If you remember back in chapter 7, we were told about all the martyrs that John saw in heaven. It was a countless multitude that had been slaughtered by the Antichrist. Remember that? The Antichrist will have his followers all over the world and they will support his agenda to wipe out all believers in Christ with murder. There will also be an increase in sorcery. The Greek word here for sorcery is pharmakon. 
we get our English word pharmacy from that word. And from it, I take it to mean that the use of drugs and alcohol will run rampant during this time. J. Vernon McGee, you know that name? J. Vernon McGee believed that during the Great Tribulation, the use of drugs won't be controlled. Suggesting that drugs will play a large part in the lives of the lost as they will resort to anything that will deaden their agony and their pain. That makes sense. There will also be an increase in immorality. The Greek word here is porneus. It's where we get our word pornography. And it's a, it's a broad word, including all forms of immoral and sexual sin. The same type of behavior seen in Sodom and Gomorrah. As hard as it is to believe, most people living during this awful time, during the tribulation period, will become even more rebellious and hardened against God. Many will continue to reject God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ. And instead, they will choose to live without God. They will want nothing to do with God. And in the end, they will get their wish. In the end, they will get their wish for when they die. God may say something like this. Well, since you wanted nothing to do with me, I will give you what you wanted. And you will spend eternity without me. And that will be hell. That will be hell. We have covered a lot of ground this morning in a short amount of time. <clears throat> and it may be easy to lose sight of the Lord in all of this agony and torment. So let me say something to you I have said to you before. The tribulation period is a time of God's judgment and wrath upon the unrepentant inhabitants of the earth. But in my opinion, and this might sound completely crazy, and I understand, consistent with God's nature, it's an act of His love to convince some people, obviously not all people, but some people, that Jesus is their Savior and they need to turn to God. It's an act of love where God gives the lost a small taste of hell. What this is. A small taste of hell. Wherefore, a limited period of time, they get to experience how they will be treated in hell if they continue to reject God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation. It's a small taste of hell motivated by his love. I, I've told this story before. 
or my dad was a, a horrible chain smoker when I grew up. You know, boys want to be like their dads, right? So one day I, I said, Dad, can I try one of your cigarettes? Did my dad want me to smoke? No, no. So what did my dad do? He lit one up and gave it to me. He said, son, take the biggest, biggest puff you can take. Suck it in so you can enjoy it. Coughed up my lungs. <laughs> that was the last time I had a cigarette. <laughs> that was the very last time. I see this in an odd way, very similar. God is just giving the unrepentant inhabitants of the earth a small taste of hell. This is what it will be like if you do not repent and come to me. I love you that much. I'm going to let you experience it for a limited amount of time. Come to me. Come to me. Some will turn to Christ. Some will repent and turn to Christ. But unfortunately, many others will reject him. Turning to other things. Things that will ultimately lead to hell. Eternity without God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your time in this word. And it's a hard word. Difficult to comprehend. Difficult to imagine. But it's your word nonetheless, and you placed it here for a reason. Heavenly Father, I, I, I pray that none of us would ever experience your wrath. that none of us would ever be separated from you. Father, give us a heart for you and the things of God. Help us to turn our eyes to you. Help us to love you. Help us to trust you. Help us to obey you. May you be honored and glorified, Lord. In our lives, individually, but also corporately as a body of believers. May you be lifted up. For you are the only, you're the only way to eternal life. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. I know that uh, this topic of, uh, of hell is not a very popular topic. I, I think most, most avoid the topic if they can. It's, not, it's typically not well-received. Some see it as a, as a way to control, as a way to scare others to do certain things. And that's not my intent at all. The truth of the matter is, it's in the Word of God. He's placed it there. Heaven is real. And so is hell. So is hell. And the Bible's clear that God desires that none of us would perish. None of us would perish. That's why he sent Jesus. So that none of us would perish. But the sad fact that we just read, the sad fact is that there are people who will still reject 
God's grace and God's mercy and God's love and God's forgiveness and God's salvation through Jesus Christ. As far as I'm concerned, there'll be no surprises. No surprises. I hope and pray that everyone here knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That you're not playing games. That you're not playing games. You know deep down inside, He is your Lord. You're just not playing church. I fear I fear for some just like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 might be the scariest passage in the Bible you know the passage scariest passage in the Bible where Jesus says to people depart from me I never knew you. And they go, but Lord, we, we did all these things in your name. We did these things in your name. Yeah, I never knew you. That is, that is so terrifying. I hope there are none here who ever, ever, ever have to hear those words. Horrible words. God loves us so much. Even though we were yet in our sin, still still rebellious against Him, wanted nothing to do with Him, God loved us so much, even still, He sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. That's what God did. He loved us that much. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And our sins are terrible. Because the consequence is pretty much the same. <laughs> Separation from God. Death and hell. That's the consequence of that's the penalty of sin. That's the wages of sin is death. Separation from God. God loves us, but we are sinners by nature and by choice. And that's why the Father sent his one and only Son, the Lamb who would take away the sin of the world, my sin and your sin on the cross to die in my place and in your place. And we're asked to respond by trusting him, placing our our faith in him and following him as our Lord. Paul tells us, I, I love this, I love this little verse, for whosoever For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Yeah. Period. Period. Yeah, Jesus did it all. I feel like I feel like this morning is leading us in a prayer. Just leading us in a prayer of salvation. Just pray in your heart. I don't need, it doesn't need to be out loud, but just pray in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I know I did not deserve it, but you did it anyway because you love me. 
accept your payment for my sin. I thank you that I am made right with God because what you did for me. Thank you. Forgive me of my sin and make me the kind of person you want me to be. Help me to trust you. Help me to obey you. And help me to walk with you. I thank you for saving me. You are so good. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. Um, If you prayed that prayer for the first time, please let me know. I'd like to be able to talk with you about that. If you're looking for a church home, love to have you. Love to have you here. Come up and let me know. We'll make it official. If there's anything else on your heart, I'd love to pray with you about it. However the Lord moves you, just obey Him. Just obey Him. Thank you for being here this morning. Let me, uh, let me close in prayer for uh, our offering. Just remind you our baskets are back there uh, for, uh, for giving gifts and tithes. And then also I want to pray for our fellowship uh, afterwards. So, Father, I, I uh, thank you so much for uh, bringing us together this morning. Uh, Lord God, I do pray that you were honored and glorified in and, and, uh, what was said and, and in our thoughts. And, Lord God, I just thank you for, again, the opportunity to, to be together with Christian brothers and sisters. And Father, I, I thank you for the opportunity to give back what you have so richly blessed us with. Father, bless our, our tithes and, and our offerings. And Heavenly Father, bless the, the giver and the gift. And, and help us as a church, Father, to use uh, your money uh, wisely. And then, Father, for our fellowship afterwards. Lord God, I, I just pray that you just bless this time for us as a church. Uh, I, I surely enjoy it. And, and Father, just uh, bless our fellowship. I pray, Lord God, it would be sweet. Uh, Father, bless those who have brought food and prepared food. And Lord God, bless us as, as we partake of it. Uh, again, Father, may you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.